Let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you know our infirmities, you know our weaknesses, you know that this has been uh, a long two weeks for our congregation as a whole, but you have seen us through. We are here, we are healthy, we are still justified, and so we have nothing but thanks to bring to you. I pray that you would strengthen us in this hour, give us mental faculties to comprehend what is the height and depth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me the ability to speak with clarity. Uh, that your truth may be known and that the Lord Jesus may have the reward of his sufferings. Amen. All right, uh, welcome back. So we are going to be continuing uh, our, our foray into the covenants this week. Last time, I think it was two weeks ago, we covered the covenant of works. As you can see, I've reprinted the seven main covenants in Scripture. Checked off the first one, we got that one done, and so we're going to proceed now to number two, the covenant of redemption. Let me give you a little overview of how this uh, is going to work. I'm going to recap the covenant of works in about five to seven minutes. Repetition, as I keep finding, is the father of learning, and so I think it is good for us to continue to recap these things, and it will assist our memory. So I, I do want to recap what we talked about last time. I know a couple weren't here as well. Uh, and then we're going to go into the covenant of redemption. I planned on trying to get through two of them, the covenant of redemption and the Noahic covenant, but as I started preparing the material, I started to realize that there's just too much here. And so we'll probably just settle for one tonight. I hope you'll, you'll indulge me on that. All right, let's do a little recap. Last time we talked about the covenant of works. And the covenant of works is important because it sets the stage for everything that comes afterward in the scriptures. We started by saying that Adam was made in the image of God. And there are many things that that entails, but one of the main and most central features of that image is the fact that Adam was made to commune with the Lord. That's what distinguishes him from the animals in many ways. He alone is able to commune with God, to have a relationship with Him, to have intimate fellowship with Him. And yet, it seems obvious that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that communion that Adam did have was not at its fullness. He was not fully in the presence of the Lord. He could not see the glorified Lord in his estate, even in Eden. The Lord condescended to dwell and to walk with him in the garden, but he held forth for him clearly something far more. And so what Adam needs in order to take that image of God, which screams out for communion with God, to its fullest potential... What Adam needs is covenant. And covenant is God's act of condescension to man where he enters in agreement with him, whereby God establishes certain conditions that man must fulfill, and in exchange, man will receive some reward. And the covenant of works is God's condescending to Adam to offer to him eternal life, glory, transcendence beyond Eden. Now, the conditions of that covenant were pretty straightforward. Adam had to obey all of God's law. And we made a distinction in that law. We said there are two types of laws that Adam had to obey. The first was called the moral law. That is all the laws written on Adam's heart. Those are all the laws that are written upon the hearts of every man and woman, simply by virtue of the fact that they are created in God's image. He had to obey all the Ten Commandments, even though they weren't inscribed in stone as of yet. He also had to obey all positive laws, that is, laws that are added in addition to the moral law simply by God's own pleasure. Whatever else God decides to bind upon Adam is considered positive law. 
the central component of that positive law that Adam had to obey was you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing inherent about that tree, nothing inherent in Adam that says he must not eat of it. God simply bound that law upon him for his own good pleasure. That's positive law. Okay? If Adam is to obey all of those, and if he obeys the law to take dominion over all the earth, to subdue it, to fill the earth with image bearers of God, if he protects God's holy sanctuary, he will have fulfilled the terms, and then he will be granted everlasting life. Him and all of his posterity. Which brings us to federal headship. The covenant was administered by means of federal headship. Adam was the representative of the covenant, and all those who were to be born from his physical lineage were to be represented by him. As he succeeds, they succeed. And as he fails, so they will fail. And then we said that that covenant had sacraments involved in it. Sacrament is a physical sign and symbol of the thing that God promises. The tree of life was placed in the garden as the sign to Adam, the pledge, of the spiritual promise of advancing in eternal life. And if he succeeds in this covenant, he will get to take of the tree of life and eat. And that brings me to one final point that I meant to mention last time, but didn't have a chance to. Probably because I was going up and down so much and just lost track of it in my notes. But there is something that Reformed theologians have, have been developing over the past couple hundred years. It goes by a couple of different names, but I think there's something to this, and I, I think it will help us to just add one more nuance to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ if we understand it. And that is something that is called the two-breath eschatology of Adam. The two-breath eschatology. Here's what I mean by that. Back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we are told... In Genesis 2 and verse 7, we are told, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. So as of now, he's composed, his physical body has been composed of matter. But he doesn't yet have life. Then it says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You may know that in Scripture, the breath of God is very often synonymous with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was the the instrument by which Adam was given the image of God, by which he was made a living being in God's image. So the Spirit comes and endows Adam once with his natural life as created in the image of God. And then he's promised everlasting life if he fulfills the covenant. And remember, we talked about the tree of life. He gets to eat of the fruit, but we said there's nothing magical about the fruit. There's no magical properties that all of a sudden will transform Adam into a... a a glorified being who is sealed in everlasting righteousness. It's just a sign and symbol. So what was to be the instrument of his sealing into everlasting righteousness? Well, as we look at the interplay between Adam and Christ, as we look back upon the garden, it seems to be pretty obvious that if Adam succeeds, the Spirit would come and breathe a second time upon Adam, sealing him in everlasting righteousness. Now, how do we know that? Well, in Scripture, the Spirit is virtually always the one who gives life to people. The Spirit is the one who raised Christ from the dead and glorified His body. But the biggest, the biggest way that we can know that that seems to have been the plan of God from the beginning is this, that when the Lord Jesus Christ is raised and is endowed with the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who comes and makes us anew in the image of the man of heaven. Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven because Christ has now breathed his spirit upon us. 
He has become life-giving spirit. And he also says in John chapter 6 and verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. And so that's the, that's the picture. Adam will receive that second breath of the spirit of God who will then seal him in righteousness and holiness forever. That's just one last loose end I wanted to tie off from the covenant of works. Okay? All right, so we're dealt with the covenant of works. We've got the basic categories in our mind. That's good. But Adam falls. He gives in to the temptations and the curse represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now we've got a problem. We've got a need. We have a need for redemption. And the covenant of redemption is God's plan to fix what happened in Adam and to take men back to where Adam never got them. And even, we might say in some ways, an estate higher. Here's a semi-formal definition of the covenant of redemption. It is that compact or agreement between the three persons of the Holy Trinity to redeem a people in the Lord Jesus Christ to their own eternal glory. Now the phrase covenant of redemption is not found anywhere in Scripture. Just like the phrase covenant of works is not found anywhere in Scripture. Just like the phrase trinity is not found anywhere in Scripture. It is a word that we use to describe concepts that are found there. I think we dealt with this with the covenant of works. The term is not used, but all the, all the uh, features of a covenant are present there. And Ezekiel, I'm sorry, uh, Hosea looks back and does call it a covenant as well. And so what we want to ask is, is there actually a covenant of redemption? Did the three persons of the Trinity come together and create a covenant amongst themselves with certain conditions and certain rewards that would be attached to it? That's what we're going to look at this evening. And our assertion is going to be that when we look at all of the relevant biblical data, we are going to find that, yes, in eternity past, there was an agreement between the persons of the Trinity with certain conditions attached to it, and upon the fulfillment of those conditions, certain rewards are promised. An agreement with conditions and rewards. That's what we're going to be looking for right now. So let's take a look and see if we can't find... What, what I'm basically going to do is just... We're going to talk, throw out a lot of Scripture passages over the next 40 minutes or so, where we just look at all of the biblical evidence that goes into this agreement between the three persons of the Trinity. First, let's look at some of the texts that deal with this agreement aspect of things. Now, immediately we come to a distinction between the covenant that God made with Adam and, and this new covenant that we are looking at. In the covenant God made with Adam, there was no mutually agreed upon thing. The covenant is enforced upon Adam. That's God's right to do that as creator. He just says, Adam, you are under this covenant, and Adam has to say, yes, sir. But when we're talking about a covenant made between the three persons of the Godhead, we're talking about three persons who are on equal footing here. And so it's very interesting that when we look at some of, the, some of the verses and some of the interplay, it seems that this covenant was actually mutually agreed upon. The Father proposes one thing, the Son willingly agrees and says, yes, I will do that. So let's look first at the Father's commissioning Christ with a certain task. Turn with me for a moment, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 49. I think Paul covered this a, long, well, a while ago. But he gave me the blessing to repeat it. Isaiah chapter 49. This is one of those wonderful texts where, honestly, if you consider what's going on here, it should blow our minds. The, the veil of eternity is torn back, and we get a little glimpse into conversations that took place in between the Godhead 
all the way before time even began. The fact that God has given us this in Scripture is quite amazing. Isaiah chapter 49, I'm going to start in verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. So this is Christ speaking. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me as a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Notice, first of all, the Lord Jesus speaks and says, The Father has called me from the womb. So we get a hint here that there's a task that the Son is being called to. The Father has called him to do something. And then we get a metaphor that helps to illustrate that calling. It's as if God has taken the Son and made him an arrow in his bow that he's going to shoot to accomplish a certain goal. And then we jump down into verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that all Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth." So in verses 1 and 2, we get the statement that Christ has been called by the Father to do something. Then in verses 5 and 6, we get a little glimpse into what this calling is. He has formed Christ to be his servant. And what is this servant of God supposed to do? To bring Jacob, a.k.a. the people of God, back to him. To gather Israel to him. To raise up the tribes of Jacob in verse 6. To bring back the preserved of Israel. And then, at the end of verse 6, not only to bring back the people of Israel and Jacob who have wandered astray, but he will make Christ as a light for the nations so that God's salvation might reach the end of the earth. So here you have it. The Father calls the Son and gives him a task. And the task is, go get me a people. Go get me a people. Bring me back the lost sheep of the house of Israel and then extend my salvation to all of the earth. The Father tasks the Son with a job. Let's flip over to John chapter 6 for just a moment. Further evidence that Christ has commissioned the Son with a specific task. John chapter 6. We often turn here when we discuss predestination, Calvinism, Arminianism stuff, but that's not going to be our focus here. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Here's the task that he's given. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father's will is given to the Son, and it's to do what? That he should have a people and lose none of them, but raise every single one of them up on the last day. Once again, he is to save a particular people. That's what the Father is tasking him with doing. Further evidence. You don't have to turn here. We're going to eventually get to the point where I can't tell you to turn to everyone because there's going to be too many of them. 
John chapter 17 and verse 4, in the high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus prays this, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus says the Father has given him a work. In other words, before he came, there was a work he had to do. It was given to him by who? By the Father. The Father gave him a task. Now what was that task? Well, he's going to keep explaining as he goes on in the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, verse 6. What have I done? How have I fulfilled the task? I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Then again in verse 8. I have given them the words that you gave me. So the Son receives words from the Father. He gives them to a particular people. That's what he's been commissioned with. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them. I should lose none of them. In your name, all of those whom you have given me. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, and them and me, that they may be one. And then again in verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. In other words, the Lord Jesus is very clear. The Father has given me a task. And now, I want to run through, in rapid fashion, a myriad of texts that continue to affirm the exact same thing. Because I want you to see how overwhelmingly pervasive this theme on the lips of the Lord Jesus is that the Father has sent me. You ready? Matthew 10, verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. He's been sent. John 5, 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 24. He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 5, 37. The Father who sent me has testified of me. You neither heard in his, vo his voice at any time nor saw his form. John 7, 16. My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. Jesus cried out in the temple, John 7, 28, saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. John 8, 26, I have many things to speak to you concerning the Father, he who has sent me. John 7, 33, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. John 8, 16, My judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He hasn't left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to him. Still with me? John 12, 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. John 12, 49, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say. John 15, 21, all these things they'll do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. And finally, John 16, 5, but now I am going back to him who sent me. And I eventually got to the point where I just had to stop writing because my hand was cramping. The Lord Jesus was sent by the Father. Sent. We clear? Pretty good with that? That's the first part of the covenant. The Father tasks Christ with a job. To bring Jacob to himself, to shepherd God's flock, to manifest his name, to teach the people, to preserve them in holiness and to spread salvation over all of the earth. So we can sum up the first part of the covenant redemption is this. The father looks at the son and he says, Son, 
go get me a people. So that's the first part. But we said that this, this agreement is a mutual thing. The father tasked the son with something, but it's not just that the father tasked the son with something. Christ readily agrees to undertake this task. It's a divine covenant. So both parties end up consenting to this. Christ's consenting to this is seen in some uh, number of texts. Psalm 40. We all know these words. In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, or a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. You see, the father tasks the son, Go get me a people. And the son's response, I delight to do your will. I will do it. John chapter 6, verse 38. Once again, he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will who sent me. See, Christ is not forced to do this task. He comes willingly. He comes to do the will of the Father because he delights to do it. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, Apostle Paul is exhorting the Philippian church there to humility amongst themselves, and he he points them to the greatest example of humility that he can think of, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The son says, yes, Father, I will go and I will get this people. I happily agree to the terms that you are setting forth here. And I empty myself. I go of my own initiative because I delight to do your will. You see, there's reciprocity here. The father gives his commission. The son says, yes, and amen. So that's the agreement. I hope we've established that there was an agreement a purpose, and that the Father sent the Son for a reason. That's the first part of the covenant. The second part of the covenant is the conditions. What is it that Christ actually has to do in order to gain the rewards of this covenant, which we have yet not expressed? Well, there's a couple of conditions. First condition, Christ must fulfill the law. You say, wait, I think we've heard that somewhere before. Ah, yes, we have. This is almost like the covenant of works with Adam republished all over again. Adam has to fully obey God's law in order to get the rewards of the covenant. And now, when this covenant of redemption is made between the Father and the Son, as we read through the Old and the New Testaments, it becomes obvious that Christ has also been commissioned to fulfill the law. He also has to obey the law in order to gain the rewards of the covenant. And so Christ is going to accomplish the task given to him by the Father by means of what the confession calls perfect, exact, perpetual, and entire obedience to God's law. So then, what is the evidence from the Scriptures that Christ was charged with obedience? Well, first, he came to give righteousness to a people. He came to give them righteousness. The Old Testament spoke of the one who would be 
Jehovah our righteousness, or Yahweh our righteousness. The righteousness was to be for the people. And how do human beings attain righteousness? Fundamentally, human beings attain righteousness through the law, through obedience to the law. This is all speaking prior to redemption, of course. Leviticus makes this very clear. It says, do this and live. The one who does these laws shall live by them. If you want to be perfectly righteous, what do you do? You obey the law. When the young man comes to Jesus, the rich young ruler, and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is, obey the law. You know what the law is. Have you obeyed it? Why would he say that? Because at the beginning, the way in which a man obtained righteousness was through keeping God's law. Keep the commandments. The Apostle Paul speaks of the righteousness that comes by the law. He was blameless in a sense, with the righteousness to the, that came with respect to the law. He says that in Philippians chapter 3. Mala read that for us, uh, I think, last Lord's Day. Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, Paul says, Moses wrote about the righteousness that is by the law, saying, the person who does these things will live by them. So in other words, man's path, if man is to be righteous, it has to come through law. Christ comes as a what? As a man. And so if Christ is going to merit human righteousness, he's going to have to obey God's law. That's the general setup. But then there are specific verses that say that's exactly what Christ came to do. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, we read this, For as by the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of the one man, the many are made righteous. Obedience is only relevant in the context of law. If there's no law, there's no obedience to be had. There has to be a law. So what Paul is saying there, of course, is that by Christ's obeying of the law, the many will be accounted as righteous. Jesus himself says, Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which presupposes what? A standard of perfection that men must compare themselves to. And that standard is the law. You have to be perfect. You want to enter heaven on your own? Perfection. Perfection by what standard? God's law. And the apostles affirm that that's exactly what Jesus did. He was perfect with respect to the law. Paul says in for, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, 2 Corinthians, He made him sin who knew no sin. Who knew no sin. That means what? He didn't disrespect or disobey the law. The only way you can sin is to violate the law. And so if you don't sin, you didn't violate the law, which means what? Christ kept the law. That's implicit in that statement. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter says, He committed no sin. He just comes out and says it. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. What's Peter saying? He obeyed the law. He didn't violate the law in any single jot or tittle. That's what it means to be sinless. And so if the apostles and, and Jesus himself place so much emphasis on righteousness coming through law, and Jesus is to give righteousness to a people, then the Father has to have commissioned him to obey the law. It's that simple. One more text supporting that. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his own Son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, God subjected him to the law. He was born under it in order to redeem those who had violated the law. So then, 
Christ is commissioned, if he's, let's, let's try and keep the outline in our mind here. We have the agreement between the Father and the Son. The conditions upon which this agreement will take place is obedience to law. And now we're going to ask the same question that we asked of Adam. Which laws did Christ have to obey? may seem like a silly question on the surface, but there are some nuances here that will, I think, provide some intrigue. The first thing that Christ had to obey will surprise no one. He had to obey God's moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And did Christ do that? Did he actually obey every single one of the Ten Commandments that are written upon the heart of every man? Well, let's find out. The first commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did the Lord Jesus love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength? He loved him so much, and he was so determined to do his Father's will, that in the face of the cup of wrath, which none of us would voluntarily ever subject ourselves to, he said, that's my God. He's the one and only God that there is. I must obey him. I love him so much that I am willing to drink the cup of his eternal wrath, which is unbearably severe, just because he wants me to, just because he's commissioned me to. I will do it. That shows that he loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He never asserted his will above his Father's will. He said, not my will, but your own be done. How about the second commandment? You shall not make any graven image. As Paul has explained, that commandment is meant to tell us that we are to worship God in the way that God has prescribed. We don't go about envisioning our own ways of worship. Did the Lord Jesus worship God, his God according to the way that God had commanded him? Well, he most certainly did. We find him worshiping in the temple, exactly where he was supposed to worship. He approached his God through spirit-wrought prayer. He didn't just come to God in any old way he pleased. He came to God through the Spirit. He opposed the false worship of the Pharisees, those who had violated the second commandment by worshiping God according to their own imaginations. He opposed it. He was disgusted by it. He would have nothing to do with it. And he always does what is pleasing to his Father. He always worships his Father in a way that is pleasing to him. You shall not take the Lord name of the Lord God your you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know who invokes the name of God the Father the most in the scriptures? Jesus Christ. He invokes the name of his Father more than anybody else in Scripture. So who had the most opportunities to violate this commandment? The Lord Jesus did. And yet every time that he mentioned his Father's name, not one of them was done out of hypocrisy. Not one time. Every time that he turned and rebuked the Pharisees and said they knew nothing of the Father, they knew nothing of his law, there was zero hypocrisy in his heart, such that when he was condemning them, he was taking God's name in vain because he wasn't actually obeying that law himself. Perfect, pure in all of his ways. Every time he said the Father's name, he meant it. His yes was a yes and his no was a no. There was absolutely no words that left his mouth that were not purposeful, direct, and holy. He never, ever abused the name of his father. He honored the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. How many times do we find him doing exactly what the Sabbath was actually about, which was rest and the healing, the, the pointing men forward to that final rest that was coming. He healed people on the Sabbath. See, when the Pharisees said, no, you're violating the Sabbath, they were showing that they were actually breaking the second commandment. And the Lord Jesus obeys the fourth commandment in order to show them that they're violating the second commandment. He perfectly obeys the Sabbath. He never went out and did his own will on the Sabbath. His mind was always focused. 
in prayer, in meditation, in acts of mercy, in worship. He was always honoring the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. He obeyed his parents perfectly. The fifth commandment, Luke chapter 2, verses 51 through 52. At the age of 12, approximately, after, after the whole episode where he stays in the temple and they come and find him three days later, it says, he went down with them to Nazareth, and here's that little phrase that, that very often gets glossed over, and was submissive to them. Submissive to them. This is the Lord of glory standing here. He's got sinful parents. And yet, when they gave him a command that was in accordance with God's law, that was not a sinful command, he said, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. He was submissive to them. He created them, and he was submissive to them. Why? Not for their sakes alone, but because he loved his father, who had given him that law, that you shall honor your father and your mother. And he knew what happened to children who could not obey that law. And so he perfectly obeyed his parents. Sixth commandment. He never had any unrighteous hatred in his heart for anyone. It's not just that Christ never put a knife in someone's neck and never committed murder. He never had unrighteous hatred in his heart. He's standing there next to Judas Iscariot. He knows what he's going to do long before he does it. He knows exactly the wickedness in his heart. Can you imagine the, the, the Holy Son of God looking at that man who he knows is going to betray him into the hands of sinners. And while he may have had righteous anger, there was never any unrighteous hatred in his heart of even Judas Iscariot. That's amazing. Even the Pharisees, oh, he was angry at them. There's no doubt about it. But there was no sinful hatred. I can barely go a day without secretly wanting to smack one of my students in the face out of selfish ambition and pride. The Lord Jesus went his whole life without a single act of hatred in his heart for another human being, and he endured far more mistreatment than anyone in this room. Make no mistake about it. He perfectly obeyed the sixth commandment. How about the seventh commandment? He was pure in all his dealings with the fairer sex. Not a whole lot to say here, but you'll notice that when he's meeting with women, he's not doing it behind closed doors. He's out in public somewhere where others can see him. There's not even the appearance of impropriety in that context. He never even, and, and look, he hung out with prostitutes, we're told, and sinners. I don't imagine that every single one of them was clothed in Puritan garments. And yet, he was able to be around them and preach the gospel to them without ever having a single one of those thoughts that all of us know about in this room enter into his mind. I, I couldn't get past the age of like nine without that. That's probably pretty generous to myself. But the Lord Jesus does it perfectly. It's amazing. He doesn't violate even the seventh commandment. He never stole from anybody. How do we know this? He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, there's something over here that belongs to Caesar. It's his. You give it to him. Don't steal it from him. The Lord Jesus paid his taxes. Believe it or not. Yes, he did. He paid his taxes to Caesar. He never tried to withhold some money, even under the guise of, well, this money could really go toward feeding the poor, like some of his disciples would eventually come up with, or saying that this money could be used to to help the church or to help his disciples or whatever. He always rendered unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and he never stole anything from anyone. He went hungry many times, never swiped a slice of bread, justifying it. Never once. Ninth, he never lied. As Peter has already told us, no deceit was found in his mouth. None. No deceit whatsoever. Perfectly pure words. I have evolved in my sanctification from telling explicit lies to now struggling with not telling explicit lies, but just trying to 
to word things in such a way where people will come to one conclusion that I want them to come to even though I know that's not exactly the correct conclusion. Even in my sanctifying state with the Holy Spirit, I can't help but give in to that temptation every once in a while because I'm still a sinner and I have to repent. The Lord Jesus was straightforward in every single statement that he made. No fudging necessary because he feared his God. He didn't care about the consequences. He wasn't so concerned with the things of the world that he felt like he needed to, to fudge the truth a little bit so that things would work out his way here upon the earth. And that's always why we tell a lie. We're either afraid of a consequence or we're afraid we're going to miss out on something. And so we, we think we can sort of swing the situation into our advantage a little bit if we just push the truth this way or use a, a very vague set of words that will deceive somebody. And the Lord Jesus never had any of that. Finally, number 10, he never coveted anything. The devil took him up, I went through this, and presented him with the entire wealth of the nations. Bill Gates looks poor compared to that. We sit here and covet the little teeny trinkets that our neighbors have that we don't every day. Christ was presented with the wealth of the nations. He's presented with more money than anyone's ever had the opportunity to have. And he was not covetous. He said, nope, nope, not to disobey my father, not at that price. He never coveted. And so we see the Lord Jesus obeyed every single one of the moral laws, all the Ten Commandments, perfect check mark. So that's the first set of laws that he obeyed. Remember where we're at. Which laws did Christ obey? He obeyed the moral laws. But those aren't the only laws that he had to obey. Because Galatians tells us that he was born under the law. That doesn't just mean he was born with the Ten Commandments written on his heart. He was born a Jew. And Jews had certain laws that they had to obey before their God just by virtue of the fact that they were Jews. And Christ was born under those laws, which meant that he had to obey those too. He had to obey all the ceremonial and all the civil laws of the nation of Israel. Did he do that? Sure he did. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Nothing in the Ten Commandments that says he has to be circumcised on the eighth day. And yet, the ceremonial law said, if you're born a Jew, you will obey God by circumcising your son on the eighth day. You will submit to circumcision. And he's circumcised. He worships in the temple. The Samaritans worshipped wherever they wanted. The Gentiles worshipped wherever they wanted. The Lord said, I will be worshipped here on this mountain. He always worshipped the Lord his God in the temple as he was directed. He only ever ate clean animals during his time upon the earth that we have any record of. His clothes were of probably of only one fabric because mixed fabric clothes were forbidden. He celebrated the Passover every year. He never said, you know what, eh, I'm not from Jerusalem. It's a long journey to go all the way up to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. I'm not feeling well. I'm kind of tired, kind of hungry. I'll stay home this time. It's, there's always next year. No, he always went up and celebrated every single one of God's feast days. And he so honored God's law that after he heals the lepers, he tells them, go show yourselves to the priest in accordance with the law of Moses. He wouldn't even have one of them to stumble over a ceremonial law. He obeyed all of the ceremonial laws as well. Now, that introduces a little bit of a distinction between Adam and Christ. Adam had to obey all of the moral law plus certain positive laws that God gave him that were unique to him. Christ obeys all of the moral laws plus all of the positive laws that are unique to him in his time period. Okay, So he's doing what Adam was supposed to do, but there are certain laws that he has to obey that Adam did not have to obey, most of the ceremonial laws. And there are certain laws that Adam was supposed to obey that are not relevant to Christ. Christ did not have the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was gone. 
So even though they're accomplishing the same thing, they do have to obey a slightly different set of positive laws. It's important to keep that in mind. All right. <coughs> Let's go back to the general outline. Contract made between the father and the son. Father sends the son on a task. Son says yes. What are the conditions that the son must fulfill? First condition, we just went through it. Obey the law, both the moral and the ceremonial laws. Second condition, so this is the second thing that Christ has to do if he's going to fulfill the covenant, is this. He must suffer the curse of the law. And here's a new distinction again from Adam. Adam did not have to do this as part of his covenant. But Christ not only has to obey the law perfectly, he's got to undergo and submit himself to the law's curse. Now what is the evidence that he had to do this, that this was something given to him. Not just something he stumbled into, but that it was the plan from all eternity past. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. In other words, the Father had planned from all eternity past, it was in his will that Christ was going to suffer, that Christ was going to be made under the curse of the law. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the Lord Jesus says this, for this reason, my Father loves me. Why does your Father love you? Because I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, that's a very pretty way of talking about submitting to the curse of God through the crucifixion and death. Why does the Father love him? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. It was the Father's will that Christ do this. This was not something that they came up with on the fly. This was not a plan B. It was always the Father's will. Christ also said, I have authority to lay my life down and authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father charged him with it. He didn't just charge him with obeying the laws. He did. He also charged him with death. Philippians chapter 2. The Lord Jesus, we read this, became obedient to the law. Well, yes, but to more than that. Obedient to the point of death. In other words, his death was obedience to the Father. The Father had commanded him to die, to submit himself to it. That's part of the obedience of the Son. Psalm 40, I have come to do your will. And then the book of Hebrews picks up on that and explains what is that will of the Father that Christ came to do. The writer to the Hebrews says, by that will... We have been sanctified by the offering of Christ upon the tree. In other words, when Christ says in Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, he's referring especially to submitting to the death of the law. Because it's by that will that we are sanctified through the offering of the Son of God. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. He was delivered up to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53 again, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. The Father planned for healing through the wounds of the Son. In other words, the Son was commissioned to die in order to attain healing. Just a couple more. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then finally... The Lord Jesus said in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I want you to notice what that presupposes, that the Father is standing there 
giving him the cup. It's the Father giving the cup to the Son. You might remember in the call to worship this morning, what we read, with Ale what Alex was talking about. The, the Father, Yahweh, has prepared a cup. You remember that? He said he's prepared a cup, and the nations will drink all of it to the dregs. It's the cup of his wrath. And now the Father stands and presents that cup to the Son in an announcement that, Son, it is my will that you die. Yeah. Sounds harsh, but it's necessary. So, suffering was the second condition of the covenant. He has to obey all of the law, and he has to suffer unto death. So, we've got the agreement, we've got the conditions, the Son has to do this. Finally, what are the rewards? What does the Son get out of all this? It's a covenant. And so, in a covenant, in Scripture, there's always rewards. There's always something to be gained if the conditions are met. What rewards were promised to Christ upon fulfilling those conditions? There's a bunch. I picked out four because, well, time's sake. The first reward that is promised to the Son is that He will be highly exalted. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore, in response to his death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If the Son will suffer unto death, if he will perfectly obey the law, if he will achieve the conditions of the covenant of redemption, the Father will highly exalt him. He will bestow upon him a special name, a mediatorial name, and now everyone has to bow to this king. Everybody would have bowed to the Lord even if this redemption had never taken place, just simply by virtue of the fact that they are made as his creatures. But when the Lord Jesus comes and accomplishes this, he is given a special, unique name as the Son of God who has taken on flesh. And now, the bowing of the knee is not a generic bowing toward God. It is a bowing of the knee to the Lord Jesus specifically. That is his as a result and as a reward for his sufferings. He is exalted and the attention is focused upon him. Second thing that he will be given as a reward for his sufferings is a kingdom and an authority. We go to it very often, but it's a glorious text, so I don't think anybody will complain if I read it again. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Clouds of heaven. Who came? Oh, the ascension. That's right. So this is right after the ascension. You see, all of this stuff fits together. It's amazing. The Lord Jesus is ascending on high, having achieved all of this. And what does he receive in the heavenly throne room, for lack of a better term, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He gets a kingdom. He gets authority. Because of what he's done. That's exactly what Isaiah prophesied of him. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And the New Testament says he must reign. That's what a king does. He must reign until his enemies are fully placed under his feet. And in another conversation in eternity past, Psalm chapter 2, the father speaking to the son says, Ask of me. I'll make the nations your inheritance. You'll break them with a rod of iron. In Revelation chapter 19, we read of that Jesus who comes and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. You see, he is given authority and a kingdom and dominion because he suffered 
and he died, and he fully obeyed the law of God. He gets a kingdom, and he is the king. The third thing that he will receive, third out of four, is a people. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we're told immediately, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sins. Well, where did he get this people? Well, he says in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, the Father has prepared a people for Jesus. And now, all that Jesus has to do to get this people as reward is go get them. He goes to obey the law and to suffer in their place. And the reward is, he gets the people. The people that the Father has given to them. And what's amazing is that in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his great travail, as the wrath of God is being poured out upon him, what is it that sustains him through all of it? Isaiah tells us that when he gives his life, when he makes his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. As he's suffering, he's hanging there, and he can see it. He can taste it. The Father's promised him a people, and he's told him what he's got to do to get him, and he's in the midst of the worst of the worst of those conditions, and yet he can look, and there they are in his eye and in his mind. There's his people right there. He's so close. It's the reward of his sufferings. Now, why would he even want a people? Well, Proverbs chapter 8 tells us, speaking of Christ before the world as he was that instrument of forming the world and, and, and through whom all things were made, he says this, speaking metaphorically through, through uh, wisdom, I was before the Father daily rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the sons of men. From before the foundations of the world, the Lord Jesus delighted in the sons of men. He delighted in them. They're made in his image. Why would he not? And then he has promised a particular people from among the sons of men who will be made anew again in his glorified image. And that is the reward promised to him by the Father. And in Revelation, of course, we see the reward that is given to him, the reward of his sufferings, a people, a multitude that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And then finally, the last thing that is promised to the Son, it's not really the last thing, it's just the last thing I'm covering, the Holy Spirit Himself. The Holy Spirit is promised to the Son. Now that's interesting, because the Spirit, as I mentioned at the beginning, is always the giver of life. The Spirit is the one who gave life to Adam in the beginning. The Spirit is the one who, who regenerates a person in that wonderful work of the new birth. He gives life to a person. The Spirit is the one who glorified the Lord Jesus Christ in His exalted life. He is the one who is going to exalt and glorify the people of the Lord Jesus. And so when Christ fulfills all of the conditions of the covenant and when He ascends on high, the Father promises Him that Spirit who is the giver of life. And then he takes that spirit and he now has the authority to give that spirit to whom he will. That's why Paul says he has become life-giving spirit. He now has the spirit and he wields it as he wills. He gives life to the sons of men who are dead in their trespasses. And if you want evidence of that, Peter says it very clearly in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He has received the promise of the Spirit, and he has poured out this that you yourselves 
RC. The Spirit was promised to him, and now he has it. All right, in the last three minutes that we have together here, I've taken you through a quick snapshot of the covenant of redemption. We've seen that there was, in fact, an agreement, the conditions of the agreement between the Father and the Son, obey the law, suffer unto death, and the rewards that Christ would get if he did it. But what was the role, that, that's, that's between the Father and the Son, what was the role of the Spirit in all this? We've alluded to some of it. But was the Spirit involved in this covenant at all? I would say yes, very quickly. The Spirit, even though the covenant was transacted between the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the seal of that covenant. In fact, He's the, he's the bond who forges the, the compact between them, and He functions as the guarantor of the success of this covenant. I want you to consider the elements of the covenant that he is instrumentally involved in and that he helps to accomplish. The covenant says that Christ has to come, okay? Christ has to come and be made a man who is the giver of life. Spirit's the giver of life. And yet, I'm sorry, and, and not coincidentally, the Spirit is the one who conceives the Son. In order for the covenant to be enacted, the, Spirit, the Son has to come and the Spirit helps to be the means through which the Son comes. Christ has to obey the law, as we said, in order to accomplish the covenant. And so the Spirit descends upon him at his baptism and empowers him to do the work of accomplishing the covenant. He, he strengthens him and he gives him perseverance. Christ has to defeat the devil. He has to defeat the devil in his temptations. And it is the Spirit who drives him out into the wilderness and sustains him miraculously. No man, even the Lord Jesus Christ, fully in his human nature, can survive 40 days without food minus some divine assistance. Who was it that allowed the Lord Jesus to go 40 days without food? The Spirit of God is the one who sustained him. So as he's fighting the devil, the Spirit is right there helping him to do it. That has to be done. And the Spirit is there. Christ and the Father both testify of the necessity of the Spirit's work, even before the covenant is enacted in time. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The Father speaks, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So now the Father speaking of the Son, what does He say of Him? I put my Spirit upon Him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. So in other words, I'm sending my servant, my Son. What does He need in order to accomplish this? Ah, yes, my Spirit. I'm going to put that on Him. And He sends Him with the Spirit. Then in Isaiah chapter 61, the Son speaks up, and He wants to voice His opinion on this matter. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You see, the Father says, I'm going to send Him with my Spirit. The Son says, I'm going, but I, I'm going to have my Spirit with me. I'm not going to do this without the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who sustains Him through trial, who raises Him from the dead. Romans chapter 6, verse 10, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. No resurrection, no covenant fulfillment. And the Spirit is right there to raise Jesus from the dead, to keep the covenant moving forward. He gives the Lord Jesus a glorified body. And then, in order to secure the rewards of the covenant for the Lord Jesus, His people, the Spirit comes and raises them to spiritual life. One after the next, after the next, after the next, and then He dwells in their hearts, sanctifying them, preserving them, keeping them. You see, the Spirit is always, if I can use this language uh, respectfully, hovering in the background. He's always there. This is a covenant between the Father and the Son, but it doesn't exist without the bond that holds it, the Spirit. The Spirit is there. And so what we need to conclude with is very simple. This covenant is a Trinitarian act from start to finish. 
Every one of the three persons of the Godhead is fully involved in accomplishing our redemption, the covenant of redemption. And so, as we conclude here, we've gone through the first two covenants, but a lot of time has to pass between the garden and the coming of Christ. A lot of time, a few thousand years. And we still got a lot of covenants to go. These other covenants are going to come in and help to bring the promise from Genesis 3 to fulfillment in Matthew chapter 1. So we'll start next time with the Noahic covenant. We're going to see how the Noahic covenant is actually necessary and instrumental in bringing about the salvation of Christ's people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you give us life and sustenance and that you did contract amongst yourselves to bring about the greatest redemption that any man could ever have possibly imagined in their mind. Lord, we are thankful to the Lord Jesus for all of his mercies, all of his graces. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to consider our salvation in all of its aspects as they relate to the individual persons of the Godhead, that we would have a fully biblical and Trinitarian view of our salvation, that the Father loved us, the Son died for us, and the Spirit keeps us, dwells in us, and perseveres us to the end. Lord, give us a greater appreciation for these things, and I pray that you would, as, as you um, illuminate our minds and minister to our spirits, that in this coming week you would minister to our bodies as well. We are still weak and frail, and we are in need of your kindness in all aspects of our lives. And we thank you that you are the great provider, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.